turn your attention back this evening to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2. I know we're sort of creeping our way through this portion of God's Word, but I think it's important to get a feel for the book, a feel for the concerns that Jeremiah has in this second chapter. The technical thing that Jeremiah is doing is he's presenting a, um, a covenant lawsuit against the nation. The Hebrew term for it is a rib. He's giving a rib. It's a, it's a, I know some say it's not a rib. It doesn't have all the elements of a rib. It has a lot of them. And uh, so I do think that that's what Jeremiah is looking to do. He's looking to indict the nation for their sins. He's looking to bring before uh, their uh, awareness the ways in which they have failed. They're not like that former generation in the wilderness that followed after the Lord. That generation that ultimately entered into the land of, of, of Canaan and, uh, and uh, dispossessed the Canaanites and received the inheritance in the land. No sooner were they planted in the land and away from the temptations of the wilderness through which they learned the ways of God and the lessons of His grace, they became uh, filled with themselves and their own um, attainments of the land and for, soon forgot the Lord. That, that's what Deuteronomy warned against, that they would come into the land, a land that uh, they would live in houses they didn't build and uh, receive the benefits of, uh, of, uh, of, of crops they never planted. And uh, they would just be filled with pride and uh, forgetfulness of the Lord and turn away from Him. And that's exactly what they did. And they defiled God's land, that land that uh, they should have received from His hand with, with gladness and joy and services, service they should have rendered with great thanksgiving. And when you think about the main uh, crimes in which the nation is convicted of or they're charged with, it's the crime of apostasy from God. Uh, four or five times he uses the language of apostasy or forsaking the Lord. Um, and then he also speaks of um, idolatry. So you turned away from God and then you turned to idols. Uh, you forsook me, the fountain of living waters. And you doubt for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. It's not just they turned away from the Lord and uh, worship nothing. We all worship something. And so they made for themselves idols, and particularly the idols of the Canaanites. The very nations they dispossessed, they began to worship the Baals. And along with these major categories of sin that they were guilty of, what, I, what Jeremiah does is he adds to it stipulations. Their crimes were aggravated by certain stipulations. You know, when indictments are brought in law courts, not in every place, but in a lot of places, what they do is they bring the general charges. This person's charged with murder. It's first degree murder, second degree murder, whatever it would be. And then it's added to it uh, stipulations. This man who committed this crime is a repeat offender. He's been um, committing crimes ever since. Um, he's been committing crimes uh, while under alcoholic influence of alcoholic beverages. So, you know, uh, or he's uh, committed crimes um, using racial terminology. So they add hate crimes uh, to the picture. And um, all of these things are, are done to uh, point to the other factors that aggravate the sins of the nation. So the nation committed these crimes of apostasy turning away from the Lord their God, forsaking Him, and then turning to these idols. But it's added to it that they did it with an unusual measure of defiance. 
They defied the living God. Again, the picture we saw last week was that they broke the bonds and they took they, they, they ripped away the, the, the yoke and they said, I will not serve. That's blatant defiance against the living God. We will not serve Him. And you know, it's an interesting thing that uh, throughout this passage, what Jeremiah does is he quotes the people. He quotes them. Their own words. Their own words will condemn them. Their own words point to the reality of their sins and their transgressions. We will not serve is what they themselves have declared. And then it's an amazing thing when you think of the words that the people of the nation uh, spoke. Uh, They spoke uh, in in terms of uh, defiance, but then it seems that they also spoke in terms of denial. Uh, On one hand, we will not serve, we will blatantly turn away from God in the hardness of our hearts and the indifference of our souls. We simply do not care. We do not care about God. We do not care about His ways. Um, But then they engage in this matter of denying the very things that God's charged them with doing. And so in the words of verse 23, How can you say, I am not unclean. I've not gone after the bales. They denied the very things that apparently they were doing. And then not only did they deny what they were doing, then they declare that they're dependent upon these very things they deny that they do. You know, you have people that deny they're alcoholics, and they deny, and they deny, and they deny, and they deny, and then the, 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 the cover is pulled off of it, it's clear what they've done, they stand with a certain measure of shame, and then they say, well, um, uh, I don't care, I'm addicted to this, I'm dependent upon it, I need it. I will sooner die than give up my my habits. I'll give up my addictions. Um, because then they go on to say, and let me just find their words. Yeah, they say this in verse twenty-five. I get oriented here. Uh, they say. It's hopeless, for I've loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So they go from defying God, to denying their sin, to declaring their dependence upon their sins, and they have no desire at all to repent. I'm hopeless. I'm a hopeless addict. I just simply can't control myself. I run after these idols with abandon. That's the progression. God says to them, you're in denial. And you're addicted. And then the final thing is, you're heading for a reckoning. You're heading for a reckoning. Your sins will ultimately 
find you out. And that seems to be in a day in which your troubles mount and you then turn to these gods who are no gods, who can provide you no help. And God says in the words of verse 28, but where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise. If they can save you in your time of trouble. The hour of trouble. The objects of their worship could not hear their cries. Could not attend to their pleas. Could not provide relief. Could not give them help. Where are your gods? These gods that you worshipped and these gods that you served. So I want this evening to look at their denial. I want to look at their addiction. And I want to look at the way in which they're heading for this reckoning. So this is where we're going this evening. Let's look at this denial. In the words of verse 23, they're denying that they have gone after the Baals. How can you say I am not uh, how can how can you say I am not unclean? That's what they were saying. God tells them they are unclean. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, in the words of verse 22, the stain of your guilt is still before me. And their contention is, oh, we're not unclean. Hey, look, we go to the temple, we bring our sacrifices, we go through the rituals, we go through the washings, we do all the things that the law prescribes, and so we're satisfied with our religious practices. And indeed they are. Many people are perfectly satisfied with their religious practices. And they think they're availing. They think they're going to help them. They think they're going to wash away their sins. And the simple reality is they are deceived. They are deluded. In their assertion they are not unclean, they simply can't see themselves. They don't know themselves. They don't know the reality of their own state and situation. And how in the world do they declare they've not gone after the Baals when clearly they have? What they've done is they've looked to mingle the worship of Yahweh with these fertility cults. And they're looking to, you know, these fertility cults might help them in uh, their crops and uh, having harvests, just in case Yahweh's asleep at the wheel. Uh, we'll go to these other things and we'll cover all of our bases. So we'll satisfy all the hosts of heaven. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Canaanite gods of Baal and the Ashtra and the other objects of worship and uh, they were simply guilty of it but they thought that really maybe God wouldn't take note because they also gave some measure of attention to his worship as they came to Jerusalem and they went to the temple and they went through the prescribed ritual what does God tell them? In the midst of their deception, in the midst of their delusion, in the midst of their denial of the obvious, the denial of that which is clear. Sin is the great blinder. Sin is the great deceiver. Sin is the, the great reality that, that it dis, not, disenables us from seeing ourselves. God simply says, look at your way. Look at your way. Behold your way. Behold the paths of your feet. And your way is a way, he says, that's in the valley. Now, it's one thing to go up to the heights of Zion and send them hill of the Lord and worship here, him there. But look at what you do in the valley. The valley were the places where many of these pagan shrines were. Now, they also had their green hills and they bowed down to these gods under every green hill. 
But in the valley, there was a particular crime that the nations were guilty of, that the Canaanites were guilty of. You ever heard of the valley of the son of Hinnom? That's what we get the word Gehenna from, the place of perpetual burnings. It became the garbage heap in Jerusalem as a result of the fact that in prior centuries, the people of Cana, of the, Can- the Canaanites would sacrifice their own children to their gods. They would put their children to death and sacrifice them in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And it was the people of Israel that replicated the very same practices, did the very same things that the Canaanites did. The king of Josiah, when he brought in his reforms, he put an end to it. But then after those reforms, it began again, it would seem. And God is saying to them, look at your way. Look what, look at the depths of, of degradation and depravity and heartless cruelty that you've given yourself to. That you've even gone to the extent of the way of the Canaanites in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Offering up your own offspring to false gods. God says, look at your way. See where you've gone. The very paths of your feet bear witness to the evil of, of your hearts and the evil that you've committed. Then God adds to that, know what you have done. Know what you have done. Come to the place of self awareness. We have to first reckon with ourselves as we really are before God, before we really ever see the need of, of Christ. You know, if, we're, if we're happy with ourselves, we'll never you know, seek the, the grace of the gospel. We'll just simply rest content with ourselves, with our own performances. We will be self-righteous. God calls us to have a reckoning with ourselves, to see ourselves, and to know the things we have done. And then Jeremiah describes their pursuit of these idols, and he uses the images of these beasts in heat. The camel, his pattern brings him to go where he doesn't even know where he's going. He's just after some kind of satisfaction of his own desires, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? Not gonna, you're not going to call her back. You're not going to bring back that camel in heat as crisscrossing his way or her way. She just doesn't know where she's he- what she's after, where she's heading. She just wants that gratification and satisf- satisfaction of her desires. None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. When she gets over the, the passion and it's satisfied and it's over, uh, she'll come back home. She'll become uh, a normal camel again to, to, to ride and to do the things camels generally do. He calls upon them to keep your feet from going unshod and your, thir- thirst from, uh, your throat from thirst. It's an interesting image because that's exactly what happened to Judah when they were taken into captivity. It was bare feet, feet unshod. They went off into captivity. I'm sorry, I, 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 I missed 
the wild donkey all together. I think I conflated the two. You got the, the crisscrossing camel, and you got the wild donkey in the wilderness, and uh, she has a sense of where she's going. Uh, she's going right for the where the, the male will be found, and uh, uh, you know, you'll find her when, when she's done with her, her business. And it's, 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 you can't reason with an animal in heat, and you can't reason with a nation that's gone after idols in the, in the fullness of their lusts, in the fullness of their unreasoned uh, uh, devotion to these things that are no gods. And so, keep your feet from going in that way in which you're going to lose all sense of propriety. Sandals fall off of your feet and you simply don't care. You're out pursuing. You're filled with thirst and you're still pursuing. And you're not caring at all for what is really in your own best interests. But then, in what seems to be so contradictory, these people that are into denial then come to declare their addiction. They come to say, well, okay, you got me. I'm actually doing these things. I'm actually doing these things. But you know what? They can't help it. I'm just made this way. This is just... I can't control it. I can't control my desires. It's helpless. It's hopeless. To call upon me to repent and to flee these things is simply um, not going to be achieved. It's a hopeless matter. It's a question of my desires. My desires are such that I can desire nothing good, only that which is evil. Foreigners, foreign gods, after them I will go. Just like these animals, I will go and fulfill my lust after these false gods. Unreasoned devotion to these entities that are no they're nothings. They have no objective existence, and yet they're so accustomed to the idol that they can't break free. That's what addiction is. It's just giving yourself over to the things of this life with such repetitiveness that we just bring ourselves under domina- the domination of that thing. It, 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 it holds us in, in, in chains, and we cannot break free. And that's where sin brings us. It brings us to put forth any and every argument not to expose ourselves, not to be brought to the place where we have to reckon with the reality of who and what we are before God. We'll go in the direction of denying that we've ever done such things at all. And then we'll go and use the excuse, well, what do you expect of me? I'm just under the domination of those things I'm addicted and I can't break free I've loved these foreign things and after them I will go and then Jeremiah exposes that you know what that's like it's like a thief he says that's shamed when caught generally speaking when a thief is out to rob somebody out to burgle a house out to rob someone the thought is I'm going to get away with it I'm going to take the loot I'm going to run and there will be no 
penalty, there'll be no exposure. No one will even know who it was that burgled the house. No one will even know who it was that took the, that uh, wallet and took the possessions of somebody else. They'll fully get away with it. And yet when that thief is caught, they're exposed. The reality is shame. Israel doesn't want to be exposed. They don't want the light of God's truth to come and bear in upon their souls. Because shame is not a pleasant thing to experience. And yet, and, and that's why most people just look to so and then inundate themselves with sinful thoughts and practices that they can feel no shame. People have no ability to feel shame any longer. But Jeremiah is operating within a society where shame was still a reality that people felt. When they were exposed, their sins found them out. Their sins were exposed. The house of Israel shall be shamed. They'll be like that thief that's caught. Their sins will be exposed. And they'll have no covering for them. They'll have no excuse for them. And he specifies... It's their leaders that will be exposed to this shame in particular. The people, yes, but their kings that led them, their officials that governed them, their priests that functioned for them, their prophets that spoke falsely to them. They all will come under indictment. They all will have their sin exposed. And then Jeremiah enters into a bit of mockery about these deluded people, these people so dominated by their sins, so accustomed to the idol. It's irrational. Again, their arguments are irrational, their arguments are contradictory, but their behavior is even worse. Their behavior is so ridiculous. It's foolish. And this whole full-scale mockery at play when Jeremiah mentions them saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. What makes it so ridiculous is that the tree is the pole, the totem, that the Canaanites would use in their worship. Those trees were reflective of the female gods. There were feminine gods. There were the goddesses, the Asherah poles that he's referring to. And yet they look at the Asherah pole that's representative of a female goddess and they declare, you are my father. You are my father. And then um, the stone that's spoken of here is of a male uh, god, a male Baal that is the reference to the stone and you declared of them you gave me birth well men are the ones that are the fathers and women are the ones that give birth but they have it completely inverted they have it completely backward they can't make heads or tails about their religious practices and the things that they do it's all folly it's all absurdity it's all the the height of of what is ridiculous and Absurd and 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 wretchedly um, mad madness that they've gone into. Because when they do these things, when they go after these bales, and they go after these Asherah poles, when they go after these Canaanite gods, 
They have turned their back to me and not their face. The ultimate evil of what they have done is they have slighted the God of heaven. They have expressed the highest dishonor that's given to the God who's worthy of their full honor. The turning of their back upon someone in the ancient world was a great slight. I mean, you feel it today. When you go up to somebody who didn't talk to them and they just turn their backs to you. You know, respect would demand you look me in the eye. Respect demands face me. Speak to me. Have face-to-face communion and fellowship with me. Instead of turning their face to God. Again, you think of the high priestly prayer that uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's God's yearning for his people. That his face would shine upon them and their face would be directed to him. That there would be this intimacy of relationship, of communion and fellowship. The kind that he has with his son, that face-to-face fellowship. In the Trinity, we are invited to share that kind of intimacy with God. That open-face fellowship that um, Moses enjoyed when God spoke to him face-to-face. So God designs to speak to his people face-to-face and to relate to his people with this um, intimacy of relationship in which there's nothing hidden, it's open, it's transparent there's fullness of um, facing one another facing God and seeing his beauty facing God and seeing his desirability, facing God and seeing him with our hearts being fascinated with the, with the object that we see you know, the sense in which the, the revelation of God to us in scripture is, is, is uh, ought to strike fear in us Ought to give us a real sense of the awesomeness of this God. Every time anyone was in the presence of God in the scriptures, they fell at his feet as one dead. And yet there's also that aspect that it's not that we turn away from this God, it's that we turn towards him. Moses goes up to the mountain in his presence. God meets with him. God speaks to him from the mountain. God spoke to him from the Holy of Holies. There is this a communion that he says he desires to have with his people. And for a people he takes into fellowship with himself, a people that he enters into communion with, to slight him, to turn away from him, to turn to these false gods, to engage in this worship, which is nothing but confusion. Turning their back to him, but not their face. It's a grievous evil. It's a grievous sin. You see how the stipulations are just making the whole matter worse. It's just not plain old garden variety idolatry. It's just not garden variety apostasy. It's apostasy and idolatry with the aggravating circumstances of the people's defiance and the people's denial and the people's degradating path away from God into the appalling abominations of the valley, the appalling abominations of the Asherah pole, the appalling abominations of the stone, 
that was all markers of pagan worship, turning their back to God and not their face. The final part of this section addresses the fact that this people is going to have a day of reckoning. You're heading for a reckoning. The days when trouble will come. You'll have your evil day. The day in which you cry out as the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel. Oh Baal, hear us! Oh Baal, hear us! Oh Baal, hear us! Hour upon hour. And nothing happened. Nobody responded. There is no Baal to hear the cries of the prophets. And God says, but in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. Oh Baal, hear us! Asherah, hear us! Gods of the Canaanites, hear us! Arise and save us! Maybe even call on Yahweh. Maybe that's the intent of the passage. They say to Yahweh, arise and save us. And Yahweh's response to them is likely found in the words of verse 20. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Now in an hour of trouble, now in a day of need, now in a day of desperation, you're calling on me? Again, everybody calls upon God in an hour of trouble. Where are your gods that you've been serving? Where are the gods that you made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. Remember Marilla and uh, Andrew Green Gables. <laughs> kind of think of it. God doesn't want fair weather friends. God doesn't want the sort of friends that just turn to him in a pinch in a time of need. God wants people that look to him, have face to face fellowship with him, know him, delight in him, enjoy him forever. That's our privilege. As the people of God. That's our privilege. That through Jesus Christ we're admitted to that kind of access to his presence. That kind of fellowship with him. Approaching him. Ascending to his holy place. In our worship and in our praise and in our prayers. Knowing what it is to draw near to God. That he would draw near to us. The final aggravating circumstance is just simply the abundance of the idols that this nation that should have been a holy nation, that this city that should have been a righteous city, this people that should have been a faithful people. God says, as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. They said of Athens of old, when Paul visited it and he looked at the objects of their worship, it says, actually there was a statement that you could more easily find a god in Athens than a man. 
Now, I don't know if that's hyperbole, but that's what they said about the city of Athens. The place was filled with idols, filled with altars, to all kinds of gods, altars to the unknown god that Paul takes up in his message on Mars Hill. But this is God's place. This is God's nation. This is God's people. This is God's city. And in God's people, among God's people, among God's city, that such a thing could be said. And that's what Jeremiah says. For as many as your cities are your gods. Now, the cities in Judah were not necessarily large cities. They were just really small settlements that were called cities. Wherever you found people gathered together in all of the tribes, well, the tribe of Judah, you just saw idols. You know, every green tree, every high hill, every valley that had an altar, a shrine, a place of worship. The people of Judah ran to it. Ran to it. It abounded. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a small thing. It wasn't a, a hidden thing. It was done out in the open in every place. All these things put together bring us to see all of these specifications of the sin of idolatry and of apostasy that the people of Judah were guilty of. It just makes the whole situation magnified. It just makes the whole situation to bring us to understand why it was that God would bring his wrath against this nation. God would bring his wrath against his own people and bringing the Babylonians to take them into captivity for 70 years. Simply enough was enough. Something had to break the cycle. One of the wonderful things about the Babylonian captivity, if you can speak of wonderful things about the Babylonian captivity, the one thing it did, it cured Israel of its idolatries. When they came back from captivity, they were simply done with their idols. There was a lot of other things God faulted them for. That they returned to the city, they returned to worship, they returned to all the ordinances, but they didn't return to him. There was something missing within their hearts and minds and souls. It was an external form of religion that many of them engaged in. Not everybody, but many were engaged in that external religion that the latter prophets speak about, Malachi in particular. But um, at least the gross idolatry that seems to have pervaded the nation prior to the Babylonian captivity, that chastening hand of God brought them to um, to to um, to reject that, to come back as a people having no place at all for the worship of other gods. But does God have to bring harsh chastisement? To bring us to see the folly of leaving him, and of forsaking him, of living for the things that are not him, and not making him central to the, all the concerns of life. Let's not be guilty of what the nation of Israel was guilty of. And not just the major things of apostasy and idolatry, but some of these things that put us on the high road towards that denying the reality of our sin defying God 
even a little bit in our hearts and saying, who is the Lord to tell me this or that or the next thing? I'll sooner pay that away for myself than mind his, his, his law and keep his words and obey his commandments and walk in his ways. Let us not be guilty. The kind of religion that looks to him in the midst of a tight pinch in our lives when troubles come and afflictions abound and a day of trouble comes and say, well then we'll know the Lord is, will be there for me then. Now the Lord will be there for you then if the Lord is there for you throughout the totality of your life's existence. Not to be just seeking him in an hour of trouble. Now blessed be God, he's there in an hour of trouble. And I think Jeremiah reflects upon that later on. Call upon the Lord in the day of trouble and he will hear you. God will answer us in a day of trouble. He'll answer people that are seeking to have our face towards him. Never our back. Never to turn our back on God. That's another Marilla statement, isn't it? Um, Anne asked Marilla in Anne of Green Gables, Marilla, don't you sometimes... What was the expression? It's like something like total despair. Uh, And she says, I never despair. For to to despair is to turn your back on God. Marilla was reading Jeremiah. Knew it was never right to turn your back on God, but to turn your face towards God, as God in his mercy and in his love looks to turn his face towards us. May God be pleased to, again, set out before our minds the sins of the nation of Judah. It's something, that's a warning. Don't go there. Don't go there. May God keep us from going down those roads and give us grace to walk in his ways and give us grace to walk with our face toward him and knowing his face turned towards us in mercy and in love. Let's go to him together as we seek him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time together in your word and again we're thankful for the the brilliance of the book of Jeremiah the way it highlights the sin of the nation in such forceful and compelling ways uh, the way in which these pictures are set out towards us and sometimes are very distasteful to look at and yet it serves as a warning so help us to be, be aware of the dangers of living in a, fa- in a, in a sinful world you know, living in a fallen world and that we might cleave to you more closely that we might know ourselves as we live before you with clearer accuracy to have your word to search us and try us and to see if there be any evil way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. We ask you to hear our prayers. We're thankful again for your mercies towards us on another Lord's Day. Dismiss us with your blessing. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.